Well, in the field of psychology, there's a fascinating theory. Now, here's the big name for it, but I think as I describe it, you'll be like, I've thought of that before. It's called nominative determinism. Now, here are some examples of this, and these are real examples. You can Google them. There is a chiropractor named Dr. McCracken. There's another chiropractor named Dr. Popwell. These are real. These are real. And this is, this is evidence of this, this, this theory. Uh, there's a famous baseball player named Cecil Fielder. There is a librarian named Wilbur Buchendorf. <laughs> this one might be one of my favorites. There is, this is real. There is a firefighter named Les McBurney. I mean, this is, you can't make this stuff up. There is a very famous neurologist whose name is Lord Brain. There is an ophthalmologist named Dr. Seawright. And there are many dentists named Dr. Payne. And a whole family of dentists that their name is Dr. Pullen. There's a famous race car driver named Scott Speed. And there's even a famous deacon of Del Cerro Baptist Church, deacon of buildings and grounds named Russ Akers. <laughs> see? You can see the, the play of the theory here. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> so now, now here's the funny thing about this. Some of the psychologists that propose this theory or study, I was reading an article about it because I'm weird. And one of them, this is the advice that the psychologist purporting this theory said, very insightful, sagely, timely advice. Since a good name or bad name has the potential to produce good or bad results, I suggest parents should try to give their baby a good name. <laughs> Duh, thank you. Trust the science, people. Can't go wrong. It's just a theory. Don't overthink it. But I bring that up because it's, it's kind of fun, but also because in Scripture, and we've seen this time and time again in Genesis, the meanings and sounds of the names really do play a large part in the biblical storyline. And we're going to see that this morning in our text as well. Names really are significant in Scripture. But even more important in Scripture than just the meanings of names and things like that, there is kind of a, a higher importance given to names that are given by God to someone before they are born. This doesn't happen often, but of course, the most famous example is Jesus himself. So uh, the angel Gabriel, when he comes to Mary, he says, or he actually, um, he comes to Joseph. He says, she, speaking of Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name, which is Joshua, which literally means Yahweh is salvation, or God is salvation. So the meaning of his name is given to him based on what he will do in life. That's an excellent summary of the story of the Bible. God is salvation. We see the same thing in our subject for this morning, John the Baptist. His name, like Jesus' is, is given to him by God through the angel Gabriel to his father, Zechariah. It happens earlier in Luke. And the meaning of John's name becomes uh, the, the meaning of Zechariah's prophecy. John's name means God is merciful, or you could say God has been merciful, which is the point of Zechariah's prophecy. So names are important. 
Now, before we look at the prophecy specifically, uh, just to set up a little bit of the context, uh, Elizabeth, it had been prophesied to Zechariah that he would have a son. Zechariah didn't believe because he was old like Abraham, and so he was struck mute and probably deaf from what we can tell. Uh, But his wife, Elizabeth, even in her older age, she conceived and she bore a son. As it came time to name the son, the people were asking Elizabeth, what's what's his name? What's his name? And she said, his name's going to be John. And the people were confused because it wasn't a name that ran in their family. And so they asked Zechariah. And Zechariah, now his faith restored, says his name is John. And so the people rejoice, Zechariah. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth rejoiced. The people can tell based on the things that are going on that God is at work in their midst. The hand of the Lord is on this child. And they ask the question in the verse 66. says, all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was, on, was with him. Speaking of John. And Zechariah, in, in answer to this, is filled with the Spirit and prophesies. And as John would have it, he famously says, I must decrease so that Christ must increase. Zechariah's prophecy that tells us all about John is really just about Jesus. And so we'll see that this morning. So look with me at verse 67. It says this, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, So, This prophecy that Zechariah gives is is the Holy Spirit's interpretation of what is going on here with the birth of John, and and kind of in a larger frame, the birth of Jesus as well. The Spirit, through the mouth of Zechariah, is interpreting the events that are going on through the lens of the Old Testament. This prophecy is a theological lens that Luke is giving us from Zechariah, from the Holy Spirit, to view the birth and the mission of John and the birth and the mission of Jesus Christ. And so we shouldn't be surprised that it is almost every single line is in a reference or an allusion to an Old Testament text. Like every good author, the Holy Spirit is an unashamed promoter of his previous inspired work. Through the Old Testament authors, the Spirit spoke of the coming Christ. And now that the Christ has come and is about to come, the Spirit is pointing back to all of the things that he had inspired in the prophets to point forward to Christ. The Spirit, when he speaks, is connecting all of the dots of Scripture to show us Jesus. This is the nature of true Spirit-inspired prophecy, focused on the Scriptures, focused on on the person of Jesus Christ. Prophecy in the Bible is most normally a spirit-inspired interpretation of events through a theological lens. Or another way you could put it is it's kind of viewing events through God's eyes. Sometimes there are futuristic elements. There is a little bit of that at the end of this. But prophecy is far more often God telling us his view and interpretation of events. And that's what we have here. So let's look to the prophecy. There's two big sections, and we'll start with the first. Each section essentially summarizes the gospel message and Messiah's mission. 
The first section is all about Jesus. The second section is about John. But even then, it's still really all about Jesus. Because John's mission in life was to point to Jesus. So if you haven't done so yet, grab your Bible. We're going to walk through these verses. And I want you to see what the Spirit has for us in these texts. So look at verse 68, the beginning of Zechariah's prophecy. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Now, Zechariah's long-awaited son has just been born, and so he begins, he responds with praise. That's what it means, blessed be the Lord God, is another way of saying, praise be to God, the Lord God of Israel. To bless God is to praise him, to speak of his goodness. That word bless is the same word we get the term eulogy from. It means good word or, or to praise. So Zechariah's aim with the Spirit speaking through him in all of this, this whole thing, is to praise God. And specifically, he says, the God of Israel. Now, this is important. Zechariah is a priest in the temple. He's a faithful Jew. He's waiting for the Messiah. He's a worshiper of the God of Abraham. And so by by giving us this, the God of Israel and all the other Old Testament references, it keys us in that the birth of the Messiah is not something new. It's not something novel in the sense that it's unexpected, but rather it is the expectation of the entire Old Testament and the fulfillment of it. It is the continuation of everything that has come before. Now, Zechariah continues, why is God to be praised? He says, for he has visited and redeemed his people. God is to be praised because he has visited his people. He has saved them. He's redeemed them. Now, you'll notice Christ hasn't even been born yet. He's been conceived, but he hasn't even been born yet. And yet, Zechariah, this whole thing is in essentially the past tense. We can ask why. Well, It's because he is so certain and sure the events that are to take place through Jesus are decreed by God and unstoppable. And so even though redemption has not been accomplished yet, Christ hasn't even been born yet, Zechariah can say, inspired by the Spirit, God has redeemed his people. Because the salvation of God's people is certain. This language of of visitation, of redemption, is all language taken straight out of Exodus. It is the language the Old Testament uses when God comes to rescue his people from their enemies. He has done it many times before, and he's doing it again. That's what Zechariah is seeing. He's visited his people. Now, how has God visited his people? He gets more specific in verse 69. And raised, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Zechariah is keying us in that this this new child, the Messiah, this Jesus, is the horn of salvation. What does this mean? Well, the horn in the Old Testament is a symbol of strength. It's a symbol of refuge. We see this when, when David uses this often in 2 Samuel 22. Here's an example. He says, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, You save me from violence. You can see all the language that the horn of salvation is couched in. Refuge, shield, stronghold, savior. Zechariah is saying God is raising up a person that is those things in Messiah. 
But not only is, is he a horn of salvation, he is a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. So this Messiah is from the bloodline of David. And Luke fills us in later when he gives us the genealogy that this is true. Jesus descended from the line of David in his human flesh. Jesus, the one coming, will be the fulfillment of God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. See, back when David was king, God had promised David this. He had promised him this. In 2 Samuel 7, God says this to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, there's that same language of raise up, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, he's going to come from the house of David, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, speaking of the temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, there are some ways in which David's son right after this, Solomon, fulfills some of these things. Solomon builds a temple. That temple is later destroyed. Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom, but not forever. And so there's a tension in that text that though it was fulfilled in some sense, there is a greater fulfillment coming. And what Zechariah is telling us through the Spirit is that this Messiah that is coming is the greater fulfillment of God's covenant with David. Messiah Jesus will be the son of David and the son of God. God is raising him up. This is the language the Old Testament uses of God raising up kings. And this Jesus will build a house, a temple for God's name. And this Jesus will sit on the throne of his kingdom forever. We'll see more of that later. Look what Zechariah says next. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Who spoke by the mouth of the prophets? God. Which is why the term is singular here. Look, look at the term mouth. It doesn't say as he spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets, which would be the most obvious way to render it. It says that he spoke singular by the mouth of the holy prophets. This is interesting. It's important because the prophets were the mouthpiece of God as a collective whole. They spoke by one mouth, the mouth of God, and they spoke one message. And that message, though different at times, was the message of the coming Messiah and God's salvation. Jesus was coming. Jesus would deliver. And so the Spirit through Zechariah says, God spoke by the mouth, singular, of his holy prophets, from of old. He told us that all this was going to happen. What was he telling them? That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That was the message of the prophets. God will save you one day. And if you read, especially through the minor prophets, they're pretty dark and grim with the judgment of God. And at the end of almost all of them, you get these beautiful passages of the coming salvation of God. We heard one last week from the book of Zephaniah. God was coming to save his people. Now why? Why did God say this? Why was God coming to save his people? 
Well, look, we see this in verse 72. Here's the purpose, to show the mercy, and we're going to be talking about that word mercy a lot this morning, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Now, another little fun name thing, Zechariah's name means God remembers, and Elizabeth's name means God is my oath. And we have both of those in this text. God remembers his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, and John's name means God is merciful. We have that in this text as well. And this really is the center of this section of Zechariah's prophecy. The mercy of God is the focal point of this whole entire thing. The mercy of God, the covenant faithfulness of God. It's really important to see in this text that God's mercy is shown in his faithfulness to his covenant. That is how God shows his mercy in the old covenant and in the new Why does God save his people? Because he is merciful and because he promised that he would. Why did he promise to save them? To show his mercy, or or you could say to demonstrate his mercy to them. John's mission is to prepare the way for the coming of God's mercy. This is the center of the section. This is the center of the gospel of Christ, the great mercy of God. And this word, mercy, here in the New Testament has an Old Testament companion, this wonderful Hebrew word that it's impossible to translate in all of its fullness. We talked about it actually last week, hesed, which the way that we translate it in most of our modern English is, English is steadfast love. This is why we read Psalm 136. Gosh, I wonder what the point of Psalm 136 is. For his steadfast love endures forever. This word contains within it the ideas of mercy and grace and covenantal love and faithfulness, loyalty, covenantal loyalty. This is the center and the hinge of the entire Bible. This this concept, this truth is what's at the center of God's salvation in the Old Testament, and it's at the center here of his salvation in the New Testament. God's loyal, covenantal, faithful love for his people. And here's the point that we're seeing here. The coming of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, is the ultimate demonstration of God's covenantal love for his people. Jesus Christ is is the embodied mercy of God, in a sense, on display for all to see. I mean, it's one thing to hear God say, I am merciful. It's another to see Christ on the cross in bodily form, the love of God incarnate. He is the demonstration of God's loyal love and covenant faithfulness. This is the whole point of John 3.16. For God so loved, in other words, this is how God demonstrated his love for the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, or we could say the one who believes in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. God does not just love in theory or in word, but in demonstration, and what we call that demonstration is 
mercy. It's not a concept. The mercy of God is not an emotion within the eternal Godhead. The mercy of God is his covenant love in action in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the ground of our hope, brothers and sisters. God is faithful. God's love is loyal to his covenant. In times of prosperity, in times of affliction, in times of great sorrow, we can be sure, we can be sure of God's faithfulness and his love towards us in Jesus Christ. His love is covenantal, it is unmoving, it is unwavering, it is never ending towards us in Jesus Christ. And so we can say with Jeremiah, the steadfast love, that's hesed, the covenantal love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah continues, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. This is the power of understanding God's faithfulness, God's loyalty, God's mercy. Jeremiah, when he utters those words, is within a very dark time of much death and destruction. And yet, because he understands the steadfast love and mercy of God, can say it never ceases. His mercies never run out. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. I hope that you see how understanding this shapes the way we see our faith. It shapes our assurance of salvation. God did not save you because you prayed a prayer. God did not save you because you made a decision to commit your life to him and so now he's obligated. God did not save you because you walked an aisle The salvation, the mercy of God is not a mechanism that if you do the right things, then it gets switched and now God will be merciful to you. No, it's completely opposite. God's mercy is not in response to something you do. God's salvation has come to you because he has been merciful to you. God saved you, not because you loved him, because he loved you. God saved you because he wanted to display his mercy to you and in you. God saved you because he wanted you to praise him. God is the author of our salvation. He is the sustainer of our faith. You responded to him. He did not respond to you. That is the power of God's mercy Again, the text says that he saved us to show the mercy that was promised. And by the way, this is what we celebrate every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. It is a feast of covenant faithfulness. We are celebrating the new covenant that we have in Christ, reminding ourselves of the new covenant that we have in Christ, and renewing our commitment to the new covenant in Christ. So, why did God save us? Because he promised that he would. Why did he promise to save us? Because he loves us and desired to display his mercy to us and through us to all of creation. Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians, probably the the 
the easiest and most simple answer that we sing often here. Why did God save us? To the praise of his glorious grace. Zechariah continues, what, what purpose? What was the purpose of salvation? So one purpose is to show his mercy, but there's another one. Look at verse 74. To grant us, to give to us this great privilege that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness, in righteousness, before him, all our days. God has saved us for a purpose. We have been saved to serve. Saved to serve, to serve without fear, in holiness, in righteousness, forever. Now, these are not conditions of our salvation. This is why God has saved us. It's not saying, God saved you now, you better serve him in, without fear and holiness or righteousness, otherwise you're going to lose that. No, no, that's how, that's how we act sometimes. Look at the text. He, he's granting to us, he's delivered us from the hand of our enemies, he's granting to us the ability now to serve him without fear, without fear of our enemies, without fear of condemnation and holiness and righteousness before him forever, all of our days. This is not what might happen this is what is true of us who are in Christ. Look at the language. It's, it's, it's something God grants to us, gives to us. And, and this makes sense because the original purpose of humanity, we were created. Humanity was created to serve God in holiness and righteousness for all of our days. And so now that God has saved us, he restores to us that original vocation. The salvation that God has enacted in Christ redeems us and frees us, not so that we can just be saved, not so that we can just go to heaven. We have things to do. Christ has saved us and restored us so that we might fulfill our original purpose, bearing the image of God to all of creation, so that we might do what God created us to do. Adam failed, and now Christ, the second Adam, the last Adam, succeeds and restores in himself and to us that job and that vocation. The promise of eternal life, brothers and sisters, is not that we will play golf for all eternity or float on clouds, but that we will rule and reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, serving him in holiness and righteousness forever. Now, now we know all this because we can read Zechariah's prophecy through the lens of the Old Testament on one side and through the lens of the rest of the New Testament on the other. I mean, on the face of it, Zechariah's words, his prophecy right here, what we've looked at so far, are not that remarkable. And let me, let me explain what I mean. This text could have come right out of the Old Testament. None of this is new on the surface. God's visited his people before. God's redeemed his people before. God's delivered them from their enemies before. God's shown mercy to his people before. He's fulfilled promises to them before. He's raised up kings. He's raised up priests. He's raised up prophets before. And yet, this never solved any issue. His people continued to stray into sin, continued to fall, to, to, to leave him, to incur his judgment. Kings and priests and prophets, even the best of them, failed. Even the best of them died. The salvation was always temporary. But what's different about this salvation is that it is in Christ. 
the true son of God. And this is what begins getting hinted at in the next section very clearly. Christ will be the final and great fulfillment of all of these things everything has been pointing to. And how will he do this? Why will it be different this time? Because Jesus Christ is not just a man. He is the word made flesh. He is God incarnate. He is the sinless son of God become human for us and for our salvation. We sung it this morning, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Jesus is God with us. Now, this, again, this is, this is not explicit in the first half of Zechariah's prophecy, but it becomes explicit in the second half. As he continues and as he starts to prophesy about, about John's role, some more things come to light uh, that I want to show you and that are so amazing. So he begins in verse 76. He kind of turns to his son, John. It just, by way of an aside, it's amazing. This, this old man who has been praying for a son his entire life, God finally grants his prayer. He receives this son and he can't stop talking about Jesus. That is true faith, brothers and sisters. He is more excited about receiving a savior than he is about receiving his son. And the things that he is excited about his son, most primarily, is that he's going to serve this coming savior. It's amazing. So he turns now to John, and you, and I can just imagine he's holding him, which is amazing. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Why? For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. John will be the last prophet who will prepare the way for who? The Lord. The Lord himself. The Lord himself is coming to his people. God had visited his people through others. God had delivered his his people through judges, through kings. Not this time. The Lord himself is coming. And John will prepare the way. Messiah will be God with us. The shepherd himself is coming to save the sheep. This is also different. Look at verse 77. To give the knowledge, so John is going to prepare his way by giving the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now, this is different too. This new Savior in the Old Testament, whenever it talked about forgiveness of sins, it always, there were all these promises one day, one day, one day, one day in the future. I will remove the sins of my people. Zechariah, speaking of John, is saying, this is happening now. That one day is today. This new Savior, whom John will prepare the way for, will be the one who will bring forgiveness of the sins of God's people. This is what the Apostle Paul later calls justification, to be declared right before God. This new Savior, Jesus will not just save his people from their physical enemies like the other saviors of Israel did, but will save his people from the enemy of their souls. He will save them from the guilt that condemns them before a just and holy God. And again, look at verse 78. Here's why. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Here again, the center of this section that the whole thing turns on, the mercy of God, the tender mercy of our God. Here again, 
and even more heavily emphasized, the tender mercy. Now, you could translate this compassionate mercy. The word here, though, for tender, this is, this is really cool. It's, the Greek word literally means the bowels, from your bowels. It's, it's your guts. In, in Greek, this is how they signified the deepest levels of compassion and love from the deepest parts of your being. Now, God doesn't have parts. He doesn't have a, a body. He doesn't have emotions in the human sense, but it's using this to describe God's mercy. It is tender. It is compassionate. That is his disposition towards us, brothers and sisters. Covenant love flowing from the very nature of who God is. We don't have to wonder if God loves us, we don't have to wonder or guess or hope that God will be merciful to us. We have the answer in Jesus Christ, the mercy of God. God did not send Jesus so that he could be merciful. God sent Jesus because he is merciful. So God, again, think of John 3.16. Sometimes the way that we talk about it is God sent his son into the world so that if you believe on him, then he will love you. No, that's completely backwards. God sent his son into the world because of his great love for his people. And he saved us. Now look again at this next section here. We're going to get even more about who this Messiah is, and and the Spirit's going to connect a ton of dots in this one. So because of the tender mercy of God, let me get the strange phrase, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now that is, that's kind of strange. Everything else is pretty straightforward. Sunrise, what are we talking about here? Now, this, is, this, this verse contains so much about who Jesus is, but it's, it's, it's kind of hidden under some layers of, of language and things. So I'll, let me peel back these layers and help you see. This, this term, sunrise, uh, is a strange Greek word. It can mean a few different things. Literally, what it means is something that springs up. Okay, so you can see why it would be used of a sunrise. The sun springs up from the horizon. And so it, it can also mean uh, dawn or morning star or dawn. King James usually translates it day spring, which is where we get O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, day spring. It's where it comes from. The Bible uses this word in the Old Testament. And ironically enough, yes, you guessed it, in prophecies about Messiah. Malachi 4.2. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, S-U-N, the son of righteousness shall rise, same word, with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. We saw John leaping in the womb. You can see the dots being connected. Again, this is where you get Hark the Herald Angels Sing. The Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. It's what Zechariah is alluding to here. The sunrise will visit us from on high. He will come. The sunrise is coming. The one whom that describes. Numbers 24, 17 uses this word too. Again, this is a prophecy of the Messiah. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall rise out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Spring up. This is speaking of Christ. Christ is the star that will come out of Jacob. Christ is the scepter 
Remember we talked about him as the Davidic king that will rise out of Israel. So at one level, what the Spirit is telling us through Zechariah is that, again, this is Jesus. Jesus is the sunrise. Jesus is the star coming, the righteous one who will come from on high, signaling to us again that it is the Lord himself. He will bring healing. He will bring forgiveness. He will come and shine. Think of the image of the sun. He will shine light into the darkness. We see that after this. He is the light giver, the shining one. Sounds a lot like John 1. But there's another level here. And this is fascinating. I, I learned this as I was studying this text this week. This word that's translated, again, that springs up, sunrise, is used of sunrises, but it's also used of something else. It's used of a sprout or a branch. And so the spirit here is playing on this, this double way that this word can be used and is showing us even more about Jesus. Now, if you think of the word branch and you look for that idea in the Old Testament, so many things come to light. Does the Old Testament ever use this exact word to prophesy about the Messiah? Absolutely. Zechariah 3.8 says this, Hear now, O Joshua, which is the same name as Jesus, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Listen to this. Behold, this is a prophecy. I will bring my servant, the branch. It's the exact same Greek word that we have here in Luke. I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So here in Zechariah 3, God is saying, I'm going to bring someone, my servant, named the branch. And on that day, through him, I'm going to remove the sins of the people. Sound like anyone you know? Sounds like Jesus. Zechariah 6 gets even more clear. Remember we said earlier in Zechariah's prophecy that this servant of David would be the one who would build the temple. Look what Zechariah 6 says. Zechariah 6, 12. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Okay, so this branch is the heir of David's throne, and he is the temple builder. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So this man called the branch will be a man in the line of David who is a priest king who will bring peace. And through him, the Lord will take away the sins of the people. But there's more. Jeremiah 23, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, in the days of this branch, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This temple building, peace giving, priest king will be the heir of David's throne who will save his people and will be called the Lord our righteousness. And not only that, brothers and sisters, he is the one, Luke says here, or Zechariah through the Spirit, that will guide us into the way of peace. But we've already seen in these prophecies that this same one is the way of peace. 
he will make peace. And this makes sense. He's the temple builder. Haggai prophesies that it is in the new temple that this one is building that the Lord will make peace. Haggai says this in Haggai 2. He says, the latter glory of this house, speaking of the temple, shall be greater than the former. So Solomon's temple, there's going to be a greater temple that has more glory, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, this new temple, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What is the temple in the Old Testament? It's the dwelling place of God. Jesus is the dwelling place of God, friends. The incarnation is the templization of human flesh, to make up a word. The branch has visited us on high, the Lord himself, which is why John says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally saying he tabernacled among us, the very presence and fullness of God walking among his people. Truly God and truly man, Christ himself is the temple of God. Christ himself is the sacrifice, and by his blood, as the high priest, he will make peace between God and his people, forgiving their sins by the blood of his own sacrifice. It is because of who he is that he was able to accomplish our salvation. He fulfills all of these things, and this is the best part. This is not some temporary salvation like all the others. Jesus Christ secured for us by the blood of his cross and eternal redemption. Redemption, not just from physical enemies, but from sin, Satan, and death itself. He rescued us out of the darkness and out of the shadow of death that we were living under. He destroyed the devil and his works, broke the power of death. And as Revelation says, he now holds the keys to death in Hades. This is the good news, the gospel of Christ Jesus. See, without Jesus, we were all in darkness, in the shadow of death. We were all children of wrath, sons of disobedience, enslaved to our sins, enslaved to worldly powers, without God and without hope in the world. But God. The words of Ephesians 2, notice why Paul says God did this. Same, the same thing as Zechariah. But God being rich in what? In mercy, in faithfulness, in covenantal faithfulness. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The mercy of God on display in the salvation of Christ. He's raised us up. He's made us alive. Why? So that we might serve him in holiness and righteousness. He's saying the exact same thing that Zechariah's prophecy is saying here. 
You see, the cross did not change God's disposition towards us. Christ did not come and die so that God could love us. The opposite is true. Christ came for us and for our salvation because of the great mercy and love that God had for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, brothers and sisters. And because of that salvation that we have in Christ Jesus, we will dwell in his house forever. We will serve him without fear and in holiness and righteousness forever. All of this being granted to us by God through Christ by his grace. That is the glory of Christmas. That is the blessing of Christmas. That God in his mercy came to dwell among us to rescue us, to destroy our enemies, sin, Satan, and death, and to purchase for us an eternal redemption by the blood of his own cross, bringing peace to all who would believe in his name. It's the theme of this prophecy, the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, the tender covenant mercy of God. It's the theme of the gospel. It's the theme of all of the scriptures. It's the theme of Christmas, the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And so if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, your faith is, is not in Christ, Messiah is Lord, I, I want to be clear because we get sometimes confused in the Christmas season with all of the messaging about Christ coming as if it's, this is good news for everyone. Well, it is good news for everyone who believes. But if your faith is not in Christ, you are not under the mercy of God because in Christ is the only place to find the mercy of God. There, there, is, no, there is no other place to find the mercy of God. Again, the, the mercy of God is not a concept, it's a person, Jesus Christ. There is no place to find peace with God outside of Jesus Christ. There is no escape from the shadow of death outside of Jesus Christ. There is no place to find forgiveness of sins outside of Jesus Christ. There is no way to serve God in holiness and righteousness outside of Jesus Christ. But there is hope, and it's what you've heard this morning. It's the good news of the gospel. God is merciful in Jesus Christ. So friend, what should you do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Put your faith in him. Trust in him. Repent of your sins and dead works and run to him for mercy and help, and you will find it. You will find it in Christ Jesus. For he has said that he will turn away no one who comes to him in faith. So believe this morning, friend. Believe on Jesus Christ, and God will grant you eternal life. If you are here this morning, your faith is in Christ, then what should you do? Rejoice. Rejoice in the mercy of God towards you. Rejoice and rest in the love of God towards you. Revel in the peace that God has given you in Christ Jesus. This Christmas season, as you meditate on the incarnation of our Lord, do so with a heart full of joy, full of reverence, full of wonder at the mystery of the incarnation. And look forward with all of your heart to the return of Christ. When all of this will be ultimately and finally fulfilled, when the presence of sin and death will be eradicated forever. And know that in this life, because you are in Christ, 
God's covenant faithfulness, God's steadfast love is unending. His mercies are new every morning. His mercy, as Psalm 23 says, his goodness and his mercy will pursue you all of the days of your life. And you will dwell in his house forever. Rest in that this Christmas season. Let's pray.